The Palmcast is created on the land of the Arakwa people of the Bunjalung Nation. We acknowledge and pay our respects to elders past, present and future. And we pay our respects to the first people of all lands, wherever you might be listening to this podcast. And welcome back to the Palmcast. I am your host, Eleanor Bancroft. Today we are talking with Zoe Gamu. Zoe is a author, a creative coach and a speaker. She's also the founder of the social enterprise How We Gather, which brings women together to look at themes of connecting and consciousness. In today's chat, we're going to be talking about the new film 2040, Motherhood and Life in the Northern Rivers. Yeah, so maybe we'll just go from, yeah, a little bit about your life and how you got into the work yeah. you're doing now. Yeah. So I, I studied at NIDA, which is the National Institute of Dramatic Art, and then I worked as an actor for 15 years. And during that time, I realised there was a kind of gap between um, participating as an audience member and participating as a performer and the, the idea that there was a, a, a potential for people who thought themselves to be in the audience to become um, creative and participants in their own stories. Mm. So I wanted to bring back that idea that creativity isn't the realm of a few, it's the realm of everybody, and that it actually is far more simple and it's not about watching and being watched, it's about collaborating together and having an experience because I think experiences are transformative and through experiences we actually rewire our thinking and our psychology in our hearts to do things in different ways and in a lot of contexts right now people are being spectators and being performed at or spoken to I think it's happening through politics I think it's happening in um, just in our media a lot and I think it's also happening in the way we're consuming information um, without um, necessarily putting it out to the same extent that we're consuming it. There's so many platforms where we can consume information nowadays. Mm. So how do we take back agency over our own creative processes and start coming together in real time mm. to create different experiences that are more meaningful and and connecting and deep? Mm. Mm, I love that. It's so beautiful. Yeah. I feel like you're quite a change maker in, in what you're doing, but also like social justice warrior. And I think really re reconfiguring those spaces and understanding like intention-based purposes for why, mm. we're, why we are coming together. Is, it, is the gatherings like when you come say for a dinner or to come in a circle, like is there a certain theme that's discussed or what trajectory are you going with your ideas in that space? Yeah, so the themes really, sometimes I... I like to propose a theme and sometimes they emerge out of the group that that comes together in that moment. And so in that way I need to be quite flexible. It's almost like an improvisational activity. Mm. And some of the themes we've explored so far have been gratitude, which is an interesting theme because, you know, there's a lot of people feel quite ungrateful and find gratitude quite a hard emotion to come to authentically. Mm. And others find it like they're ducks to water. They're just feel so immersed in gratitude, it flows through really naturally. So exploring the blocks to that and then how we can um, come to find it 
authentically for ourselves. That's been one of the themes we did in an early circle. Um, I love that. And they've actually done a lot of um, research that says you can change your neural pathways in the mornings by actually having just a gratitude or a moment of gratitude. So I think a lot of people may think, oh, yeah, that's really um, woo-woo or quite like, you know, Mm. esoterically spiritual or something to always pay homage or that it could be based in religion. But it's actually, it is actually factually science that we're changing the makeup of our brains by waking up, rising and thanking the day. Yeah, Brother Stendhal Rest has done a lot of um, uh, investigation into gratitude and he talks about that as well. But there's a, I think what you said, interestingly, you touched, you said, you mentioned religion and I think that's one of the points that, I've been really interested in around how we gather because I'm interested in exploring ways we come together that are spiritual and expansive and reverent um, without being religious, without being institutionalised, without being um, dogmatic and that stand outside of kind of already preconceived beliefs and ideas, I suppose what I'm looking at is that space in between spaces that connects all of those things mm. and and the truth that exists beyond all of those things. And that's a very limbic um, kind of ephemeral space to play with because people I think nowadays – I know I struggle with this myself, to find spiritual connection that stands outside of religion and that stands outside of um, dogmatic belief because how do we simplify those those feelings? And I think a lot of Indigenous cultures, you know, nature-worshipping religions or like past ways of being um, do this in a really beautiful way. It's like they cut out the middle guy, <laughs> and they cut straight to the source of connection. Mm. And so I suppose I'm really interested in exploring how that works in a group too. Yeah, I mean, for me, it sounds like um, a social change in culture. Yes. And I feel like that's really where you're coming to the table with the we like with how we gather is that actually if we start to change our culture it's not based in religion but it's based in how we choose to interact with each other where we choose to interact with each other and I think a lot of people are especially in Australia quite like you know the missionaries and all of that space that Mm. did like be part of the colonization we can be really adverse to it you know really not want to have that in our space but I think it's a redefining of our culture because we are an amalgamation of a lot of cultures we are and and how do we how do we amalgamate some of those cultures and bring them together without appropriating you know without insulting indigenous cultures that have been doing these really sacred ceremonial creating these really sacred ceremonial ceremonial experiences for such a long time how do we learn from those and teach each other and integrate whilst also standing in our individuality and our differences and it's it's a really funny one because I grew up in Southeast Asia so I grew up in Indonesia largely until I was 13. Mm. Um, I went to school here from the age of seven in Australia but I I lived overseas until I was seven full-time and then started schooling here and went back to Indonesia every school holidays. And I grew up surrounded by 
you know, Muslim communities and Catholic, but and largely a very strong Hindu community. Um, and having those experiences from a young age as a child, I was really informed by lots of different religions <laughs> and cultures. And so, and I didn't feel like an outsider. I felt with my child's mind immersed in those cultures and I felt a part of them. And I, I think part of me did appropriate or adopt them in some ways as, as my own, but I didn't know any better. They were just around me. And it was sort of like being in soup, you're a part of it. You're just one vegetable in the soup. So it, I couldn't, you know, with my adult's mind, maybe that would have affected me differently. But as a child, I took it deeply into my subconscious. And I think it informed a lot of the work I'm coming to do now, strangely, because what I drew from all those different religions and cultures as we moved around Southeast Asia, well, when we lived in Burma, which was later, um, I was very affected by the Buddhist philosophies. But what I drew from all of them was the common themes, the common, the common elements. So ritual, things like scattering petals, lighting incense, um, burning candles, touching beads of sandalwood or touching offering bowls that were metal and cold and the different textures and the different sounds, the bells that would ring, the chants that would be performed, some in Sanskrit, some in different languages. You, you take, I was taking all of this in and then I think those common elements are starting to weave their way into the work I do now and I'm, st I'm starting to think how can I incorporate these in a secular way? How can I bring this reverence to people so that they feel connected to something greater than themselves and do it authentically without appropriating other cultures? Yeah, I mean, I think I feel like the common theme when you look at a lot of even, say, um, like olden ways, old religions, more kind of um, pre-colonized -colon um, spaces is that actually a lot of them are saying the similar things. A lot of them yes. are saying the similar ways to be. Mm. And, and it's about stripping back any attachment to a label and just creating kind of like a human way to connect, you know, yes. a human way to create culture. And, and non-Indigenous people... I mean, we're all indigenous to the earth. Like, let's be real about it and real yeah. about like our our stepping up as global citizens and, and really un unifying that. I think uh, the cultural appropriation space is so interesting because it's coming from a similar p place of like this new wave of feminism that's coming up, which is, you know, the people who have been oppressed for so long not wanting to feel like this constant string mm. of oppression as not feeling like they, their voices are heard. And I feel that within the the women's space too as well, you know, and yes. just like stepping into this powerful voice. And I, yeah, I guess I, I, um, I, I think the work you're doing is really powerful and I think that everybody should be trying to figure out how to strip back these labels and, and stories that we're creating around ourselves to really move forward in one big global community, which is like, to actually look after the centeredness of the earth. And yes. um, I know that you're heavily pregnant right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you also have one daughter already yeah. alive and who is a big inspiration for you and your husband. Huge. And how has kind of motherhood affected or, or, or kind of, yeah, been a catalyst to these projects? Oh, it's 
I'd say it's been central to mine, definitely, and and it has gone on to inspire my husband's, certainly, you know. Um, he recently made a film called 2040 and our daughter is very much at the heart of that, you know, the idea of what will her generation be experiencing 20 years from now, hence the title 2040, mm. um, what will they be dealing with in terms of, of climate and he looks at it from the angle of solutions that are available, that we could, that exist, that we could implement and could have a huge impact 20 years from now if we do implement them. So that's a really hopeful story. And there's a lot of not very hopeful stories out there, but I think we need hope in this time, but we also need action and affirmative action and positive solutions. For me, the journey of motherhood has influenced me um, at a very core level as is as it's wont to do, I think. It really I had I held a lot of these values and a lot of the opinions and thoughts I held prior to becoming a mother. But I was living in a kind of cognitive dissonance. You know, I was doing one thing in the world and then I was holding all these beliefs and ideas and in in my own heart and mind. But I I was missing the link between choosing to express them in the world in an affirmative and, and, you know, effective way. So for me, when I became a mother, that cognitive dissonance became even more great. And Mm. I felt like I could no longer persist with just doing my work in the world in one way and living my values in another way. And so I started to take every effort to close that gap. And one of the first things I did was extricate myself from the work I was doing. I was doing a commercial television show at the time. I was partway through a contract and I was working the same hours I was working prior to having a child, but with my baby, three-month-old baby in Mm. tow. And I was breastfeeding in between doing all these scenes and it was was crazy. It was a crazy time. And I learned so much from it. One of those being that we can do it all, we shouldn't have to and we don't have to. <laughs> and um, as mothers, I think that's a humbling lesson to go through, but a, a lot of women I know have been there and you learn that the hard way often. But also um, what I saw was I hadn't been happy in the work I'd been doing for a long time, mm. but I hadn't fully owned that because um, in one way I was happy. And I know this is this is this seems strange to even express, but I was fulfilled to a certain extent. I was earning a good income. I enjoyed it. I was in a creative industry. I loved the people I worked with. Everything was kind of fine, if that makes sense. Mm. But there was a deeper part of me that felt unfulfilled and it was a quiet part of me. It was this more... um, this really hard-to-describe area of which I'm now turning into my work, you know, this feeling like I could be doing more with these ideas I'm having, but I don't fully know how to express them. It was literally like I was listening to this void space and trusting that there was something that needed to emerge from there, but I had to go there and step away from this conventional work that I was doing in order to experience what that was. So um, being a mother... I I never I would never have made that decision for myself prior to becoming a mother. What I saw was when I was going back to work with my 3-month-old baby girl, 
she was protesting, yeah, on my behalf. Her cries in between my scenes or, you know, her lack of sleep because she wanted to wait for me to get back from my job to be put down by me, not by anyone else. Mm. She was saying and responding in the way that my inner child was you know she was protesting on behalf of me and it almost like it was almost like it externalized my own inner workings and suddenly they were there in front of me in the form of a child and what I couldn't do for myself which was step away from my work I did on behalf of her because I saw this was not this was untenable for myself and for this little person. And while I was willing to put myself through 70-hour work weeks and maybe loving my work but not being 100% in love with it, I wasn't willing to do that to her. And I thought I'm not willing to, I'm no longer willing to um, sacrifice anything on behalf of the well-being of the greater whole, that being my daughter and our family. So in a way... That was my first experience of really putting aside my own ego fully um, for something greater, which is was the well-being of my daughter and my family. And I think that's the experience of matrescence. You often hear that term used, matrescence, which is that that stepping into the motherhood experience. And I think it can happen to people in different ways, but for me it definitely did come with with the transition of becoming a mother and from that point, it's like a switch flicked in me and I was no longer able to do things I didn't believe in with all my heart. <laughs> and mm. that was my particular experience of matrescence. It's like something switched in me and I thought, no, I, my barometer is clearer now than ever before and I'm not willing to put my energy into anything I don't love as much as, you know, my family, which sounds huge because how could you love anything as much as your little girl and your husband and family, whatever, partner. But, but, but that there was is, kind of the there truth. is work out there, you know, there that I think work. when it aligns, like it there becomes is. like a, a, a bigger collective of a family, I guess. Yeah. I feel like that story is so potent for not just younger women, but just younger people in general, because we get raised in this society that really um, holds celebrities and fame on such a high pedestal. So a lot of what we kind of drive ourselves to be when we're younger is is in that space. That's what we're leveling out success. And what I'm really hearing from your story is that the the stripping back of the ego once you've had your your first baby and just like really realizing like, wow, actually it's not about just the sole individual journey anymore. It's about a more kind of collective space, even if it is yes. just your family, mm. you know, but that, that story I think needs to be told more from more mm. people who've been in your situation because yeah. I, I, I feel like it, it happens a lot, especially with women because we have the initiation process of delivering the baby, of actually stepping into the motherhood oh, space. Yeah, so powerful. And also I think what's important is that for me then that like it started with my direct family and the impact I could see on them, but that translates into a much, much wider circle. And the other thing is I'd had an awakening long before I acted on it. I had a sort of awakening in my mid-20s, but it took me six years from the point of having that experience to actually action it into my external world. And the actioning of it came after I became a mother and I think there was something powerful, powerful about the experience of birthing for me that I, that 
was it was fierce and wonderful and I felt so expanded from that in every way. It was, um, and I remember speaking to a friend who'd had four children and she was a little older and her kids were teenagers and she said to me, your your brain chemistry does change when you become a mother. It, you, you know, you get these effects of pruning where certain parts of your brain reduce then their activity and other parts such as the part for empathy and facial recognition and um and you know uh, connection where wide our connection aspects increase mm. so all those little pathways light up and i think that original impact that i felt with my family definitely extended to a wider community it's it's almost like i've i feel like i've been able to hold more space since those experiences with more people and my awareness has expanded. And one of the other ways it's expanded is definitely in connection to the earth. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I really see that. I mean, just from um, afar, I see that within you, you know, and I think it's really beautiful and admirable and an incredible mother and incredible member of our community also. Oh, thanks, so thank Anna. you. And likewise, oh. even though yeah. you're not a mother or not yet a mother, it's I see that same depth in you yeah yeah I feel like we've got a lot of similar trajectories yeah yeah yeah. I'm like like um I'd love to talk I mean this is a big passion for me is is obviously being connected to the earth and our impact that we're making but really highlighting and being um aware of what what those things are that are causing damage and one thing that you're doing with your initiative um one green dress is um, looking at ways that we can reuse um, and continue to use a piece of clothing even Mm. if you have say been to a you know opening of your husband's documentary or so forth we'd love to talk to you about that initiative because that is like on point for me in terms of where we need to step into yeah so that's kind of also how we we first connected because I, I remember, yeah, we, we connected around one green dress when I was talking to Claire Press about it. Um, and, well, when I was interviewing Claire Press for her her book and one green dress came up through that. But um, one green dress for me is really an adjunct to the work I do with How We Gather because for me it's just another way of creating more depth and bringing more meaning to a gathering. <laughs> and one of the things we do when we gather is we dress up <laughs> and we wear clothes that are appropriate for different occasions. And we have all these social conditionings around what it is to, you know, show up to an event. The idea that we might need a new dress for every event that we go to, say we're going to our sister's wedding and then we've got a bat mitzvah on and we've got the funeral of our uncle and all those sorts of things. And so One Green Dress for me came out of a time when I was back in the entertainment industry when I would attend a lot of events through the work I was doing. I was invited to attend a lot of events and I noticed how every time you would attend there would be so much commentary on what people wore and not just for myself but all these women around me and and men but largely women and it was almost like this spectacle of beautiful birds, you know, and I thought, yeah, it's great to appreciate 
people for their beauty and but we are so much more than that as beings and and while we're constantly focusing on that aspect of the story we're missing the fact that this might be an olympic gold medalist who's or this who's turned into a sports commentator or we might miss out on the fact that this is a really well studied you know, journalist who's now become a newswoman, or this is a, mm. a really gifted whoever woman in her own right who just happens to be attractive and is being commented on for the way she looks. And I thought, how could we redirect this conversation? So how could we focus more on the inner substance of the people around us and less so on this constant outward appearance and reference to outward appearance? And then I also thought... As people in a creative industry, we're perpetuating this mythology around consumerism that we need to constantly consume to be relevant and that it's not appropriate to wear the same thing twice. And I think a lot of the time people turn to that sort of celebrity culture for a bit of a fix, you know, in in some way people like to see what people wear to the galas and the events and these uh, creative events like Oscars or in Australia, the Logies, <laughs> and, yep. which we were just on last night, funnily enough. Um, and But how can we actually refocus that conversation on the inner substance of these events? And I thought one way would be to repeat wear clothes. So repeat wear the same thing over and over again until people got so, you know, used to you wearing the same thing, it didn't matter anymore. And also then let other people know that it's okay to wear the same thing over and over again. And then, of course, the deeper issue there is the environmental issue. So while we're perpetuating this myth that we need to stay culturally relevant and socially relevant by wearing things that are different all the time, while we perpetuate that myth, we're participating in a very disposable um, disposable uh, way of living and um, we're not valuing the resources we have we're eating into new resources that don't necessarily which are finite and which we are already overshooting more and more each year um, and I mean I think it's also important for people to realize that the fashion industry is actually the second biggest polluter in the world behind oil and gas which exactly. is quite shocking when you we hear that for the first time. Mm. I think a lot of people's reaction points with that is, well, really? But mm. we're living, like you said, in this, it's a fast fashion world. You yeah. know, everything, it's got to be here and now and now it's done and now it's out and the trend is coming and going like as quick as I can click my fingers right yes. now, you know? It's really important conversation that needs to be had and ones yes. that people need to realise like it's actually chill to wear clothes continuously. People don't mm. actually comment that much, you know. Exactly. And also like what a privilege of a particular class to be able to afford newer clothes to every event. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I started this One Green Dress Initiative, which is basically you wear the same dress, you choose one dress in your wardrobe or, you know, that can be a, a pants suit or it could be a jacket or it could be a wetsuit if you're a server. Just you choose one item of clothing you love and you wear it 30 times to significant social events in your life. And you photograph it and hashtag one green dress. And in doing so, you're showing your support for the environment. You're showing your support for empowerment of, of you know, the individual, as, as, you know, our, our inner substance over our 
our intrinsic value as opposed to our extrinsic value. And you're also showing your support for um, circular fashion and thereby also the environment. And uh, and so through doing this, that's that's the little movement I've started. And then I also feel like on a side note, it's yeah. very empowering for women to claim this space back where they're removing the objectification of exactly. themselves and their bodies and actually <sighs> stating, oh, actually our time now to speak up and wear whatever we want to wear, when we want to wear it. And if that aligns with my morals, I'm going to do it this way, you know. Morals first, ethics first, appearance second. Yeah. And, and so... When you participate in this movement, you do it 30 times, you're purporting those values, and also you're, you are being part of a movement, you know, you're being part of this reduce, reuse, recycle movement and repeat wear movement, and you're simplifying things like you're reducing decision fatigue, and you're Which is real. reducing the amount of washing you have to do, mm. and you're reducing the amount of resources you consume, and there's a whole lot of flow on, trickle, trickle on benefits. And the other thing I love about it is that, you know, it's economic as well. And a lot of the people who've been participating in this challenge have said things to me like, I've been doing this forever because I can't afford to buy a new thing to every mm. occasion I go to. And also, you know, other people have said to me, how ridiculous is it that, you know, we should be even having this conversation because this is a conversation that only really privileged people can have, which is, oh, gosh, I'm being so economical in not buying, you know, oh, look at me not repeat wearing. I mean, look at me repeat wearing and not not buying a new thing to every event. I'm doing such a good thing. And, and they're like, well, this is just what you do because not everyone can afford to do the opposite. So... Actually, a lot of the people who've participated in the challenge already uphold those values, but it's almost like it's given them a platform to make it even clearer and 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 to make their resolve even more staunch. Mm. And uh, I've loved seeing that because then there are also the people who who are like, oh, God, this never occurred to me. I can't believe I have permission to do this. It's giving people permission either because they've already been doing it and now they're claiming it and putting their stamp to it or they haven't been doing it and and it's like this is they're allowed to now because it's being popularized and I hope to popularize it even more and I hope more celebrities start doing it on the red carpet because when people um, turn to them for fashion inspiration or or for just you know general kind of fodder because they're mindlessly consuming some sort of you know, a bit of a bit of flippant media for mm -hmm. some fun. That subconsciously, the idea of someone repeat wearing in that context subconsciously informs how they might do things differently as well. Yeah, definitely. And it's a collective change as well. You know, like I think we need to move more away from the individual mindset and the mindset of how can we stand together. And by bringing people, I mean, you know, it's as simple as a hashtag, but it really does create change. There are incredible hashtags all over mm. the world that have impacted social change and justice. And I think that is really how we're going to move forward as social justice warriors or change makers is to combine our um, communication platforms to create a voice, you know, and one that screams, that doesn't whisper, one that really roars. And yeah. I just like, yeah, huge, huge homage and respect and reverence to you for doing it because I just, I, I feel similarly I've done, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I've done my own work in this space, which looks like I haven't bought anything new for over a year now. Cool. Yeah, it, with, with exception to a leather jacket that I spent a fuckload of money on. So, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that's why I haven't um, spent or bought anything because that was like kind of my done. But, you know, there's certain things out there I've been saying to my flatmate, yeah. like, yeah, you can buy that new, but just buy that new and like keep it until it falls off yes. your back, you know, like really till it's got holes on it. And I think like we just, we need to be the new trend makers and that's decide it. what it is and actually holes are cool holes can be cool you know you can go to those commercial stores and down in byron and they've they've <laughs> purposely put holes in their you clothing you can buy clothes with holes in them exactly. for a lot of money yeah. or you can keep your stuff and then you can spend all Hole the leftover yourself. money on organic food <laughs> this is definitely a byron bay podcast well but, i've yeah. hold i have hold my one green dress a few times i've so i've been wearing one green dress now which was made for me by local Byron brand, Spell and the Gypsy Collective. And the reason I chose to work with them for this as a collaboration is that Lizzie, who's one of the founders of Spell, is an old friend of mine. And we've known each other in previous incarnations. So, you know, like before we were living in Byron Bay, before we were here together and before she was doing Spell. So I knew Lizzie when she was a video editor back in back in Sydney and the two of us were friends and we were going through heartbreak. We met one day on a beach when we'd both broken up with our boyfriends at the time in our 20s and we cried together and laughed together and then said, let's be friends. And <laughs> we've been friends ever since. And Lizzie has also been going through a huge evolution with the business at Spell and they've been carving a path to a more sustainable business model and they've been very inspired by the work of Patagonia and they are diligently and authentically trying getting there and they're really transparent about where their shortcomings are and they know they've still got room to grow but they're being honest about that and I love that I love I love that complexity you know I love that people are willing to stand in the gray area and go we're not perfect but we're doing the best we can and we are moving towards more sustainable practices so they made this dress for me out of a new tech fabric called Ecovira which is um it's actually compostable and biodegradable at the end of its life cycle Mm, wow, and it's made amazing. out of wood pulp fibre um, from forests that are grown without irrigation, so proper sustainably run forests. And um, and then also the duster that goes over the top of that slip, which is the second component of the dress, is made of dead stock. So it's just the end of one of their bridal collection fabrics. So I like that, that way, it's a double, you know, because yeah. you can wear There's it the to new and the old. evening or daytime. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I, I took the idea from a men's suit, which is two pieces, and you can wear it in multiple ways. And so, so this particular dress is my green dress, and it is actually green, but everyone else's doesn't have to be. And I've worn it 11 times now, and in that time I haven't washed it once. It still hasn't been washed, so that reduces water consumption. Um, I've got the first time I ever wore it, I pulled it because I had a glow mesh seventies handbag, vintage handbag that I was wearing with it. And it was to my husband, the premiere of my husband's film, the opening night of my husband's film, Mm. 2040. And this glow mesh bag, we were cuddling on the red carpet and it was always rubbing against me between us as we were, you know, holding onto each other and patting each other on the back. And so I've got these, the first time I wore it, I got pulls all through it. And I really realised it was like sandpaper against this beautiful, delicate fabric. But the fabric held up. It was pretty solid. Mm. And so we depilled it. So that was the first thing we had to do. I spilt watermelon on it from when I was feeding our daughter just before I was about to go out. 
and we were having watermelon together and it spilled all down my dress. So I spot cleaned the watermelon off it. Watermelon's not too bad. And then I also did a tree planting day at a local place, Bangalore, where you, I think, did the welcome to country, Ella. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I got a hole in it that day as well, digging, planting trees. But I felt like, and some good old dirty mud on it, good clean mud. And it's it's really like stood the test. And it's also been on the red carpet and I've also worn it on television on Channel 7 for Sunrise. Um Oh, sorry, the morning show. And, yeah, I've worn it in lots of different contexts now and it's stood up to the test. So if you can wear it in that variety of contexts, I've worn it, um, you know, hosting talks, I've worn it um, mm. doing circle, I've just, you know, it's the same dress and no one cares and if anything it starts a conversation and people say, oh, you wore that last time or... Oh, what? And uh, yeah, I did. And this is why. Mm. Or, oh, I like your green dress. Yeah, do you know why it's green? Because of this. Mm. You know, there's more of a story to it. So if I am talking about how I look, it's 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 creating a bigger story than just don't you look nice. Yeah, it's a more informed exactly. story than one that's based on, and dare I say the word patriarchal, but you know, the patriarchal views of what oh, beauty yeah. is supposed to be. Rather than I think uh, I'm a huge advocate for clothes as conversation starters. Yeah. Probably a little bit too political sometimes in the clothing I wear, but, you know, I like to push the envelope for sure. Well, there's a great T-shirt that we were talking about just before the podcast. I think we should share it. It was like, why be, why be homophobic, racist or transphobic when you can be quiet? I love that slogan on a T-shirt. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's great. Just silence yourself. And that can have an impact, you know. The, these are subtle things. Or the Adani earrings mm. that were made by a friend of yours? Yeah, House of Dizzy. She's an Indigenous woman, an uh, Indigenous um, uh, fashion designer who's out of Melbourne. House yes. of Dizzy is, does lots of really potent stuff. But I also see this as coming through quite strongly with you know, our generation, the generations coming forth who do have um, social enterprises. Um, There's a lot more kind of entrepreneurship in the space of wanting to make change, you know, Mm, whereas I feel the previous generations, it wasn't as such a potent um, topic of conversation. And I, I really think the way to make change is infiltrate the system. So if you want to make change in the fashion industry, start a fashion label that looks at recycling clothing and reusing or using carbon offsetting and and giving people that option I think is important because it gives them the option to choose with their money how they want to kind of lead the future. Exactly. And, I mean, we did have people in the past, like the suffragettes chose to wear purple and and green to represent their suffrage. The... You know, Vivian Westwood with her, you know, punk era where she really stood for a movement that, you know, she designed for a a movement and the punks looked to her to identify themselves. And then, you know, we've had the pussy beanies for the Women's March. There's, I think, clothing. Even even just pants on women when we got out of the skirt Exactly. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And so fashion has changed and informed and identified us um, either positively or negatively. And and I think it's a powerful tool because you can't avoid getting dressed in the morning. Mm. You can avoid, you know, 
talking about certain things, but we, at the end of the day, we all have to put on something when we get up in the morning. Well, most of us, unless we're in a nudist community, which is very barren. Maybe too. a little bit further north <laughs> at the moment because yeah, it's a bit cold. A bit cold but, at the yeah. moment. <laughs> Seasonally nudist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think that it's a, it, it just is one of those things we can't avoid. We've got to, and so maybe your jacket that you've chosen, your exy jacket, mm. maybe that could be your one green dress. Yeah, I'm totally going to do this with you. I was going to, like, I mean, the whole Spring. time you were talking, I was like, I don't wear dresses, but I could definitely like, get some some patches on my overalls and yes. just like re, re bring them back to life. And see, the, the dress is in inverted commas. So mm. it's what, it's, it's the idea of clothing it's whatever clothing you want to wear yeah mm. I'm so down I've, I mean the leather jacket is also a fave but I wonder it's probably best to start doing it in winter if I'm going to <laughs> not that I go to events really you know but I'm I'm mostly just chilling and it's events in your life so like yeah. this is an event for you this is your work well this is a podcast this is I think that that's also how we redefine you know, what is meaningful to us? You know, what, what is a meaningful interaction to us? And, and I think some people's events are big and shiny and some people's events are humble and quiet. And that's why I wanted to wear the dress to the tree planting because for me that is sacred. That's a special event and that's something that is dear to me and it's more dear to me in some ways than, you know, a flashy event and yeah and to be there with your daughter as well you know yeah. to be planting trees together at this space and Bangalore 96 is an incredible initiative that yeah started. I love their work yeah and they're they're um in conjunction with Harvest Nuri Bar which is a really supportive um organization it's a restaurant but also does a lot of work with regeneration and wild harvesting and just looking at really beautiful ways to bring food to the table and mm. I think that's also a really amazing way to make change too is what what we're consuming on that level because I yes. feel and I don't know if you're aligned with this but I feel like maybe you are yes is healthy body healthy mind a healthy earth and absolutely I, I know that you had some well that you were probably the catalyst slash slashed um the inspiration behind the sugar film. <laughs> yeah, my husband does say that. So, yeah, often he he talks about that in when he's asked where did he get that inspiration from. He'll say me. Yeah, I mean, beautiful. even in the film, he talks about you guys getting together, and yeah. he was not having a super solid like um, diet and stuff. No. And, I mean, how did you get into you? You're you're a health coach, right? I mean, that yes. based on that space. So and- I studied. I went back and studied health coaching. Um, and specifically the interest for me was more the interpersonal stuff, so community and, and relationships and connection and spirituality and that was sort of more the emphasis that I I focused on through my health coaching study. But, of course, I had to cover everything as you do and, and so I also covered nutrition and diet and lifestyle and exercise and all the standards. And I think they all work in concert together, you know. Um, for me, I suppose that healthy body aspect started when – I I was diagnosed with ADD in my teen years, so from 13 to 18 I took medication, I took Ritalin and I didn't like it, I hated taking it and I'd often forget to take it and I wasn't hyperactive ADD, I was withdrawn ADD so I was the kind that would like just exit the building and just stare out the window while someone was talking and um, and so... 
in order to kind of uh, come off medication, I started to look at different ways of doing that and I investigated some of the, you know, rather than treating the symptom, the cause, um, and I started to investigate causes and there were connections. I read about connections with chemicals and produce and so I started reducing my chemical intake through eating organic and I started shopping organically and I was no longer living at home. I was at uni so I was sort of more self-sufficient in that way. Um, even though my diet hadn't been bad, it was just actually about taking a lot of that chemical load out. For me, it made a huge difference. And it was also about um, reconnecting to my sort of heart and soul through m- a bit of meditation and spiritual kind of awakening. Mm. And that sounds all very hippy-trippy sometimes, but I think what it did is it brought me back to inner clarity and uh, settled my mind and settled my emotions. And for me, my ADD had a very emotional component to it. So it was very much for me about um, earlier on in life, my parents' separation and how that had affected me emotionally Mm. and that withdrawing because of feeling that overwhelm of emotion often. And so finding a way to be at peace with that and heal some of that for me, brought me back into present time and gave me that clarity and and helped me deal with that. Rather than avoiding and withdrawing from difficult feelings, I was able to be with them and stand with them and and uh, and move through them. And so that was all connected for me. And I went back and got my tests and, of course, the brain scans and things that you get when you are diagnosed with ADD. And I went back and got my tests done when I was in my early 20s and I, inverted commas, grown out of it um, (laughs) when I actually knew Mm. how much work had gone into growing out of it. Mm. But it showed that I was, I no longer had ADD and I had no, no longer had any reason to take the medication and what I didn't tell them was that I hadn't been taking it for a couple of years by then anyway. Mm. I'd kind of I love these stories, like this story of mm. like actually sometimes we can yeah. really shift and change certain things that we've been diagnosed. It's not forever no. that there is change capable, but it does take hard work. It takes effort and it takes uh, humility because you have to be okay with the idea that maybe the way you've been doing things isn't the most ideal way of doing things and then you need to put the effort in to do things differently. And it that takes a certain amount of self-exploration and self-discovery and, yeah, kind of unwinding from the patterning we create for ourselves. So, and, what, and one of the big things was cutting sugar? For me, I was always sensitive to sugar and I just did not have the palate for it. Like I would have a glass of apple juice and get a headache. Mm. So that's how sensitive I was to sugar, like even fruit sugars and <laughs> like healthy inverted commas sugars. Uh, so, yeah, for me, I I naturally gravitate towards more savoury food. And then, of course, when I got together with Damon, he had a good old sweet tooth and he, uh, I suppose, just started eating differently as well because we would cook together and we would eat together and we'd shop together and he noticed the effect on his moods pretty much instantly. And on his whole body and energy levels and vitality and, uh, yeah, it's it's a subtle thing, but gosh, it has a flow-on impact. And so how long have you been without sugar? Well, I still, oh, you know what? You I'm, have sugar. I still have sugar, yeah. I okay. still like 
go to a birthday party and have a piece of cake and okay. I'm not the person. <laughs> Gabe and I were joking the other night that we're going to be those people who no one invites to dinner because, oh, no plastic, no sugar, yeah. no, yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh, we're driving a petrol car. Like, <laughs> it's just yeah. Like, oh, you better like, just blindfold you. How much you? more repellent could we become <laughs> to society? <laughs> but, um, yeah, we. No, we I see it opposite. Got a lot like, of values. I actually, you're, you're, you're creating change within the conversation <laughs> that maybe your good friends are having at dinner tables as well, you know? And a lot of our friends here have that understanding. And, and, and I think we also are quite um, moderate. We're not extreme. We're not mm. the people who are like sitting there judging or waggling the finger. We're the people who are, we hope, are more abridging, are saying, we get it and and we're in this too and we're all in this together and we all have our points of hypocrisy and we all have yeah we all have our our um our challenges and they're different and if you want to eat sugar till the cows come home go for it because i'm sure there's something else you're doing that we're not doing and that you're way better at mm-hmm. and, you know you're you're really leading the charge on so i think we we're, we're really understanding of complexity I, I like I hope we are and I I I think we are and that's one of the things I'm really I try to embrace through my work and and something I've seen over and over again often the most spiritual person in the room is not the guru it's the truck driver or it's Marge from the grocery store who does buy a lot of plastic you know but often these people like often people it's like there's these little angels in disguise or there's these people with such wisdom that don't see themselves as as a purveyor of wisdom or don't see themselves as spiritual or don't see themselves as an activist but they're actually just doing it in an everyday way and that for me is one of the most exciting things is there's all these hidden gems in the world that we don't even know exist. And I think often when we get into that space of being an activist, being a change maker, being someone who wants to make a social impact, you can think that we're in a bubble and that <laughs> there are only a certain finite number of people thinking and acting and doing this. Mm. But there are people who hold completely opposing values who still have this great, these great gifts in other areas that, that we're not seeing necessarily overtly but are in there. And uh, that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think the key in that, that is like walking forward without judgment of others, you know. And if you, are, yes. if you are talking a lot, to be trying to actioning as well into your walk as well, you know. Like I think I, I, I often find this space, especially with social media, this, you know, complex battle of do I, don't I mm. operate in it, but I definitely operate in it with a loud voice. Something I wonder is like, are we going in this direction, which is where people feel that social change and activism can just be online and then they feel like, oh, okay, I've done it. Mm. I've said my bit. And I can walk away and not necessarily have to action anything beyond that. It's it's yeah. you see it through different kinds of social movements that are occurring on social media that seem to come for a week and then they disappear and you're not really sure where they go or you know somebody your your mm. posts are about that and then they they're out the door the next you know week and onto mm. something else. So I feel like it's important to highlight as well. You know while we're using these 
there's social media for social change. Um, that we're they're remembering that the little the little things in life that we do do add up, you know, like the little carpooling to yoga could help yes. or it's super simple stuff, you know, and we live in the Northern Rivers where I, where I know I'm in my car a lot and I'm the first to admit, mm. you know, I operate, I don't have an electric car and I operate on fossil fuels, but how can I kind of bring balance to that? Mm. And it's just about bringing back balance and also not, yeah, again, like not beating myself up that I, yes. I'm i not walking into Byron from Bruns every day, you know, and yeah. spending like an hour and a half on the beach, not being like, okay, you know. <laughs> there, there, there are ways that I think we have hope and then I ways that where things can feel hopeless, but I think it's important in this rapidly moving informational age that we're in that we remember to just put out pat ourselves on the back and also like do what we were talking about at the start of the podcast, which is coming back to a place of gratitude. I think yeah. I think more gratitude in your life means less consumption because the more you're grateful for, the less you need in my eyes. I think that's a really good summation of it. I, I do feel like, and I also feel like gratitude is an inherent state. So we can strive for it and we can try and... Um, sort of impose it on ourselves in a way or we can come back to the truth of of aligning our actions and our and our you know what we talk about like you know what we purport and what we actually do and then the gratitude flows naturally and I think a simple way of looking at that is say food the example of food it's one thing to go I'm really grateful for this meal it's amazing thank you blah blah it's another thing how much gratitude have you felt? Have you grown your own veggies? Mm -hmm. you, yeah. Mm -hmm. How much gratitude have you actually felt when you've like picked your lettuce from your garden and no snail ate it and it grew big enough for you to pick it and then you put it on your plate and you're like, I'm so grateful for this lettuce. This is amazing. I can't believe it actually made it to my plate. Totally. totally. <laughs> I've wanted it since it was a seed. And in that instance, the gratitude is inherent. Mm -hmm. It's like I am over brimming with gratefulness that this lettuce is on this plate. It's very different to going to IGA and buying lettuce and putting it on your plate. And you still might feel a certain degree of gratitude, but it's a different connection. So mm -hmm. I think that lived, walked, experienced state is a natural wellspring for gratitude. And and it's and it's part of the process of slowing down too, you know, yeah. when you and, I mean, going to that beautiful, simple space of growing your own food, uh, how simple it is, but it's also, it does take time, you know? And so Effort. over that time, mm. yeah, and you like, oh, wow, I'm watching this thing grow out of the dirt. I put my, and the taste is like nothing you'll ever put in your mouth, you know? Like the taste yeah. of your own grown veggies is like, <sighs> It's like nothing that you can compare no. to. So you, the gratitude isn't forced either. Exactly. It's really there on a cellular level. It's really apparent in your space exactly. and in your mouth and all of that. And, you know, I do understand there are people out there that don't have, you know, time maybe to grow their own veggies or, you know, spaces to even do that if they have apartments or whatever. But, you know, I think like what I would advocate, especially for people in cities or people that feel they don't have that is look for like community garden startups or exactly. or places where you could just have a plot of land somewhere. And Or what area can you apply that metaphor to in your life? Mm. And where can you more authentically and deeply connect with something so that that feeling of gratitude comes innately? 
And so, so, yeah, use that example of growing the plant and then, you know, farm to table. Use that example for something else in your life because right now I'm not growing my own veggies. I'm six weeks off having another baby. It's winter. Our garden is has been absolutely flooded with rain and I'm just like, no. And we're going to go travelling at the end of the year for Damon's film. So I'm like, yeah, oh, there's no point starting it now because we're just going to go to seed. So I won't be planting this spring but maybe next year I'll plant again. But this, you know, are you it, doing the, in my yeah, life, yeah, lots of other there's things. other areas where I'm putting my energy into it so authentically that the gratitude flows naturally. And uh, I would say that's probably true of what you're doing too with this podcast for yourself is like the things that you genuinely invest so hard with so much of your heart, so heart felt in your intention and so pure of your intention. And I think what you're talking about with social media before, you know, we, um, I think there's a lot of noise out there at the moment in that social media space with not a lot of content. And I, I feel like to create a shift where that doesn't have so much um, power but or it's used in the best possible way is to to be someone of 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 great content outside of your social media world so that when you do participate in social media that's the smallest part of what you're doing that's just the end that's just like a small offshoot it's not this is my world all on social media and outside I'm actually feeling pretty empty and I feel like I see that with the work my husband does like he does so much work that he never is posting about and blogging about and storying about. And, you know, I see the amount of work he does and the amount of people he connects with and and that we both connect with. And for us, social media is the, is the, last, is the last point of that. It's not, you know, our lives and not everything we do is on there. And, and when we use it, we try to the best of our ability to use it for... Um, just sharing information or sharing something that moved us or that's a, a bit more inspiring or just for me I probably use it a bit more um, creatively in some ways but I hope it's more content, less noise <laughs> because otherwise I should just be like that T-shirt and just be quiet. <laughs> no, I think that your voice needs to be heard on social media. <laughs> I am down for you posting every day. <laughs> But I also realise that you're, you know, about to be a mother of two, yeah. so that's probably not going to be so, yeah. you know. Just heaps the... of baby spam for you, Ella. Yeah, yeah, cool. Send them to me, just private My direct. boobs and baby. Yeah. Right, right, into it. I feel like my social media is, like, relatively narcissistic, but I tend to, like, have a pretty <laughs> strong voice, um, you know, with the messaging. So you just got to do whatever you can do, you know. I definitely yeah. just am trying to, like, alleviate or... Um, it just being blah, yeah. but I, I I do think it is a powerful thing that we can unite people with and it's a way that as we're like, you know, we are moving into such an interesting space with technology, it does tend to make people feel not alone, you know, yeah. not so alone when they, they feel there are other people out there um, speaking their truth or saying things that they oh, wow, I was thinking that as well. And even if that little moment of, you know, somebody posts something and they're having a really shitty day or they something's mm. not so good in their community or in their, like, love life and mm. you can resonate with that and you're mm. like, okay, this is cool. Um, I think that's where it's it's beneficial. But 
it's like money, you know, you can't hate social media. You just got to figure out how to how use, to it, use it. Uh, it is. There's so many things like that right now. And like you said, even the cars, how we are in a position where the system we're in makes it hard for us to be anything other than hypocrites, largely. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in that space yeah. for you. Like what, I know 2040, it's an amazing film and um, I saw it at the the Palace Theatre in Byron um, a yeah. week and a half ago or something like that, two weeks ago. And it's so awesome to see a film mm. that's super hopeful. And I imagine that you were like there during a lot of the researching and, oh, and yeah. all of it. Yeah. But one thing that I was thinking a lot during the film and when I came out was, wow, how ho- hopeful it is, how solution-based it is, how mm. incredibly creative it is as well. You know, God, it's it spans like an audience between, you know, an eight-year-old to an 80-year-old. I yeah. feel like everyone can relate to it. Yeah. It's playful. You don't walk out feeling like, oh, my God, depressed, what's going to happen? But one thing I did think was, wow, a, a lot of it is based on the infrastructure of uh, our, our society. Yes. So how hopeful are you? that I guess our government or the people who are actually like in in um, the puppet makers, I guess, of the structural system, mm. how hopeful are you that they will actually implement or look to making change? Because a lot of, I think, sustainable practices looks like giving power back to the people. And mm. that can be a really tricky thing to do when you have power to give it back. I, I feel like that is uh, a really that is at the crux of it. There's also the economy is at the crux of it. You know, behind everything we're talking about is the fact that these things are driven by economy and the powers that be that feed into the government systems. Um, yeah, I feel like this is where that idea of matrescence we were talking about before becomes very strong and powerful and where this we are living in a largely patriarchally patriarchal society you know system definitely uh and i don't think anyone would have any any doubt about agreeing with that um when i look at someone like jacinda ardern from new zealand i see a woman who is just incredible and a mother who is really standing on a on a a precipice that, you know, she's right on that edge. She's pushing that edge of what we know is possible. And she's still doing it within that patriarchal system. And I feel like the next shift for us to take is towards a more matriarchal system again within those bodies of power. And I think part of that journey is we need that energy of matrescence, that energy of shifting out of our egos and into our hearts and broadening our perspective so that it's not just about the I, it's about the we, that natural ability that that mothers often have of being able to see outcomes before they happen. I know that if my toddler goes any further, they are going to be on the road. I just know that with my instinct in a way that no one else might be perceiving right now, but my instinct is strong and very clear and I I can see outcomes in a way that other people can't right now because my brain has rewired itself to do that. So we actually need women in these positions of power and we actually need the system to change so that it is it it, it, it takes into account a larger whole. I think the um, 
And what I'm hearing a lot is actually we need women who are mothers in in positions of power, you know, as well. We need a a mothering energy to come into the power structures of our planet because uh, that mothering energy has a broad perception. It has an ability to uh, perceive problems before they occur and to plan for the best possible outcome for everybody, the Mm. whole, not just the individual i.e. me, and uh, there's, a, there's a natural ability to stand with complexity that comes when you become a parent or mother. You, you become very good at holding complexity, that things aren't black and white, that there's a lot of grey, and also you realise that things have cycles, natural cycles, and we need to start returning to those more cyclical ways of doing things and less linear because... Um, it's unsustainable. When we talk about sustainability planetarily, we also need to talk about personal sustainability because there's people in women in positions of power at the moment are burning out. They're burning out more than men. I think there's a, a I was shared a, a doctor shared a statistic with me the other day, a local doctor who works with um, with uh, postnatal depletion. His name's Oscar Sarah. Like he he quoted me the other day a statistic around that and I've forgotten it but it baby brain um, but it, it was around how women in positions of power are burning out because the structures aren't supporting them but they themselves actually have the intel that we need right now we need to be supporting them with the structures so how we do that I don't know but I feel like that's where we're headed and that's where we need to head for some of these solutions to be implemented and not in a technocratic way, but in um, uh, returning to the work of, you know, well, Helena Norberg, she talks about ancient futures, returning to more localised systems, um, supporting local economy, local infrastructure, local community, so that there's really healthy, thriving communities, micro-communities, and they can all connect around the larger problems. We're looking at global government. I think these are... These are big concepts and it's really easy to sort of sweep through them. Um, but I feel like this is where we need to head as a, as a whole, as a planet. Yeah, I agree with you. I think a yeah. lot of it is based in the, the slow down movement for women as well, you know, and you touched on that idea of like the cycles and changing and that women are getting a lot of adrenal fatigue because what what's happening is a lot of women in positions of power I think are trying to you know match men rather than being seen for being women and for being recognized that they have a different cycle recently I just found out actually men work on a 24-hour cycle which is actually why our society is structured with a 25 24-hour day Whereas women, you know, obviously work on a 28 to 30. Day cycle, yeah. Yeah. And in that space of 24, the men will go through all of the same um, emotional, hormonal changes as a woman does, but it's just so winter, spring, summer and autumn occurs to him within that one day. Wow. Whereas obviously we're a bit more spread out, so... What I'm, what I'm noticing a lot within like just the structural space of the patriarchy is that, that men can do that. They can be really, mm. you know, things can be really fast for them. But really what we need to do is come back to the 28-day cycle to draw things out a little bit longer, mm. to realise that things don't need to be here and now. I guess mo- remove being impatient from our society, you know, and come back to a softer, slower pace that looks like, 
okay, this is going to take a little bit of time, but that's okay because the longevity is there. It's the bigger picture. There's a bigger picture and like you said, that longevity. Yeah, there's a vision for something beyond that, that's longer term. I yeah, I don't know how and I think that's okay. We don't need to know how. I think we need to sit with the questions and sit with the with what is because being real about where we're at actually is the only way we can move through it. And I think we've got a lot of sticky points to move through before we can come out the other side. And I think trying to trying to dismiss that or or, or skip that step would just come crashing down. So I think being real with what is and um and aligning as much as we can our inner and outer worlds to create ever more congruence within ourselves then naturally reflects that to the people around us. I mean, we know that children, this is one of the gifts of being a parent and the <laughs> blessings and the curses, children do as we do, not as we, not as we say. So they're watching us around how we are, mm. what, how our being is, not what our doing and saying is. They're watching our being. So the healthier our soul lives can be and the healthier our, our you know, our internal worlds can be and as much as we can make them congruent with our external worlds, children pick up on that. And and I think that builds a healthy younger generation who know what it is to be in coherence with themselves. And from there, they're going to be able to make faster decisions with less um, kind of stuff to unravel from. Mm. So I think, yeah, in that way, I know a lot of people are choosing not to have children because of the climate crisis and I think that is such a noble decision and I also think it's a really noble decision to have children. I think both are true and I think it's okay to, to choose either way. I think it's amazing to have choice. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And the privilege that us as women living in Australia, we we get that choice and sometimes other women may not, you mm. know, but um, the choice is like really important, what we're doing with our bodies and what we're doing with our, our, our passing on. And I agree with you. I mean, we need mothers like you definitely like showing your daughters and, you know, the way forward and how to be women and 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 really like not to fall into a lot of, I guess, Ah, social conditioning that they need to be something other than just the beautiful little girls that they are, you know? I'm I taking mean, one that in. I'm receiving what you say, Ella, because I feel like, you know, we I, – I love that I'm becoming a mother again and I love that I am a mother and I'm, I'm really glad that I chose it as part of this journey in my life and it was a choice. You know, I wasn't one of those women who was cluck, cluck, clucking – at my husband going, come on, make me a baby. I wasn't that person. And and we we came to it through a really sober decision, you know, like that my husband and I love each other dearly. Damon and I are just in love. And these children came from our love and they also but it was a sober decision. It wasn't like a hormonally fueled kind of I couldn't stop we couldn't stop ourselves thing it was maybe that's beautiful too um it is beautiful too but we 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 knew when we were making babies that this was going to be a journey and were we willing to take that journey yeah we are 
So um, that's that. Yeah, I think that knowing what you're choosing and choosing for yourself, what feels true to you, is really important. And as much as you can, not being influenced by what we think we should be doing or what, how other people do it, and what you know, and those decisions can change in a moment. It's being real about what's true for you now. And, and in doing that, I think you can move through the next step of possibly making a fresh decision as well. So it's, I think we need to go through all those sticky points of, do I want to have a child because of this climate crisis? Mm. No, I don't right now. Okay. I'll sit with that for a bit. See how that feels. Now I've met someone who I really love. Do I want to have a child because of the climate crisis? Nope. Still don't. Okay. Well, now I do right now in this moment. You yeah. know, it, it, I think that flexibility with ourselves is important. So, and we spoke yeah. about this as well earlier. You know, the the what happens if you know all of the people who are very aware of what's going on with the climate, who are the change makers, who decide to not have children, and then we end up with, you know, maybe a <laughs> a, a next generation of not so. Um, aware I guess about what's actually happening and the impacts of the environment and you know there's it really we could change the face of this earth with one to two generations that that could actually happen if we had the next generation of babies being born the ages one to seven where their neural pathways are being completely and utterly programmed into them if we really spent all our time and effort and energy to make sure that that next generation knew exactly what they were going to be stepping into. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think they kind of already are Mm. knowing that. Like, look at Greta and Chloe. They are just, yeah. they've got it. Greta Thunberg knows what's going on and she is here to deliver that message in all its entirety and, and bring a whole generation with her. Well, she's making her way to the UN and trying to not get on a plane. That's that's her next thing, which she I think doesn't is fly. It, yeah, because it's just like come on, admirable. This is amazing. Yeah, I love it. And and that that is their that's future. congruence. That's coherence. This is what I'm talking about. This is a p- person who's so in touch with their internal world that they're aligning their external world. They're like, this is not what the world is doing, but I'm going to do it mm. because this is true to me. And this is important to me and I'm standing for something bigger than myself. She came in with that and uh, I think that is so exciting. She's accelerating a movement with her own congruence and coherence of being and doing. And that is what I mean when I talk about matching that internal action with that external action and the gratitude that comes through from there. We don't need affirmation and we don't need praise and we don't need acknowledgement. They're all very nice things when we know we're in alignment with ourselves and with something greater and we're standing for something. And truth has a certain ring to it that is kind of unavoidable and it it, it kind of holds a space within chaos that can't be touched because it just is what it is. It's, it's this powerful. interesting thing with truth because um, I remember the best advice I ever got um, from a previous um, love was never never worry what anyone thinks of you as long as you're living authentically to your truth. And mm. that entire sentence changed my whole way of being, going from a young teenage teenager to an early 20-year-old who was 
very caught up in what people thought of me because I grew up in a society that taught me to care what people thought of me and never felt like I was aligned with my truth because I was always trying to be something for everybody else or, you know, like agree with somebody there and then agree with that person even though I may have not liked that but I wanted them to like me. Mm. And as soon as I had that sentence, it was like, wow, I can fully accept myself. And actually it's true because Mm. when I show up and – People don't like me or I can feel a sense of, you know, um, energetic confrontation in a way. That's okay because that's not mine to carry, you know, and that's what I walk away with at the end of the day. I don't need everybody in this world to like me. I need a few people to love me. I need a few people to stand aside me. And then that's kind of it as long as I got Mm. my own back. That's exactly, that is exactly right. And we, we know, we find kindredness where we need it. Yeah, and and I don't think we can't control other people's opinions of us as much as we might like to try. We just simply can't and we can only do what we can do and with what's within our awareness at a particular moment in time and then be humble enough to know when it's time to move on and and change and grow and evolve and look at ourselves, you know, and eat some humble pie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a continual process. And God, that, that's one thing parenthood has taught me a lot mm. is that constant, you have a little mirror reflecting back to you and and they're just so divine in the way they do that too because they do it with like kids, do it directly and also lovingly because no one has ever loved you as much as your child and, mm. you know, except maybe your partner. But they just love you with this unconditional kind of love and so you're getting feedback from them in the way they're behaving with you and and you need you, it helps you evolve, I think, as a person and yeah. And and hopefully grow into a more compassionate, understanding person. <laughs> What's your birth story look like for the next one? Do you have like Ooh. a rough idea or is it like a you're well, more like just go with the flow? Well, I'm, I had a pretty amazing birth last time. Our little baby girl was a breech baby and I had her nat- and, and naturally. So that was an incredible experience and kind of against all odds. There were 15 people in the room when I gave birth to her because it was so unusual to see a breech baby born. And So can you just elaborate on breech? So breech what? means bum first. They come out, their little bum comes out first instead of their head, which is usually ends in a cesarean for people. But she was full term and I was fine and I happened to have an obstetrician who was cool with doing breech birth, so we did it and it was amazing. And it was I had these incredible midwives who kept just saying to me, Breach is a variation of normal. It's just a variation of normal and if they're full term it's safe. And it it was for me and it was an amazing experience. It was absolutely oh, profound. But um this one I was a bit nervous about her being breached, but she's head down. So who knows? Maybe it'll go how it'll go. But I feel much more flexible about all that too. You know, when I was first time around, I really wanted a home birth. I really wanted all these things and none of that happened. And it was great. (laughs) So it was okay, even though it didn't go the way it was planned to. I just love birth stories because oh, every woman so has a different, different one, and also, it. It, and it can be different for everyone it and can. beautiful. It can, and also it can be shitty and beautiful. And I've had so many friends. I've got friends with four babies, five babies, three babies, one baby, and every story is different. And 
you know, all those, I think it's a myth, the idea that, you know, you have a cesarean, you can't bond, you, you have a episiotomy, milk doesn't come in, all that nonsense. I've had friends who've had those experiences and I've also had friends who haven't, who perfectly bonded with their cesarean baby. And I've had friends who've had amazing natural births and like, like I, I can't stand my baby, I can't, my milk hasn't come in, whatever. You know, it's just, it's, I just don't think there's a rule and I think we need to take the pressure off everyone out there for sure. who's done the birthing thing, you know, in any way, shape or form. And, and, shame. and, again, and yeah, come back to choice as well. In a previous yeah. podcast, we had um, a dear friend of mine who's an Indigenous doula and we spoke a lot about Amazing. this. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. And we spoke a lot about just the pressures and shame around, I mean, especially I, I feel it a lot more in the last couple of years is this shame around hospital births and just really wanting to like bring <sighs> conversations into this podcast with all women that I interview yes. about what their birth story is and how normalized everything is. Hospitals can be great. Oh, yeah, yeah, they can be great. Some people love. I have a friend who who uh, yeah who's Indonesian, and she grew up with a lot of noise, and she felt safer birthing in a hospital because it was nice and noisy and chaotic mm. than she did birthing at home where she was like, it's too quiet. It's really. <laughs> There's no one here. And, you know, like mm. we need to know ourselves and know what works. And, and that's what it is, really. It's, it's always dependent on the woman because yeah. your stress levels could be, could look like for the, for her a place of quietness and by the fire exactly. that could be very stressful. Oh, my God, I'm <laughs> abandoned in this like, house in the forest and no one's here, you know. Exactly. I would like some beeping noises. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So I think what is all, all, always it comes down to the individual. Always it comes yeah. down to what's going to be that that individual instigator for stress and how to make the woman the most comfortable she could be and you know yeah. for for a lot of women that that is looking like being in the comfort of you know doctors or medical um practitioners and who some of them are that rad space. like some of those some of the nurses and midwives you get in hospital are rad mm -hmm. I had an amazing obstetrician who I ha I met at the 11th hour he I just happened to be on shift when I got in there and just happened to be one of the only people in Victoria who did vaginal breech births so, so like perfect. But if I'd been there 18 hours earlier or eight hours earlier, I would have had someone else on a different shift who would have insisted on a cesarean. So, I mean, my my experience could have gone either way. So I just I feel like we need to just chill out and, and loosen our shackles on each other and on ourselves around mm. all of that and give ourselves permission. And I, I've have, I've have heard a lot of beautiful interviews with very, very gifted people home birth midwives and and very gifted doulas and very gifted nurses. I've listened to a lot of it because you do when you're about to go into that space for a little while. Sometimes you go down those wormholes. Sometimes it's created more unnecessary stress because there's a lot of beliefs around when it's natural, it's going to be better, basically, is the most common belief. Or the other common belief is have a cesarean because then your vagina will be in one piece at the end of it. And both of them are nonsense and both of them are true. So uh, I just think the more we, tr we, we create a belief and adhere to it, the more likely we are to be challenged by everything around us and by our experiences and, um, and, and exclude people at the expense of it. And, and I, I, I feel like the, the more I know, the less I know in that way. So... Mm. I'm much more comfortable with complexity. I think that has been another gift of of motherhood. I'm much more comfortable with complexity. I'm much more comfortable with grey areas. I'm much more comfortable with like, 
I don't know the answer. It's different for everyone. So it's beautiful. Yeah. It's the unknown space, you know. I think like more, more, more younger women are kind of like, oh wow, I've never, I've never had a pregnancy. So say for a first time pregnancy, I've never had that, so I don't know what it's going to be. But also, you've never been a mother. But like you said, the neural pathways work, you know. And we just have to trust that our bodies have done this for so long. We know what we're doing. We know that when just that happens. baby comes out, we're a mum. It just happens. Yeah. You just do it. You just do what's in front of you. You do yeah. what you have to do. Yeah. I I dream for the day that our society like has our mothers on a pedestal and the CEOs down next to them, you know? Like <laughs> I I really feel like that's the way forward and I I'm so much of my um <sighs> advocacy mm. is in in the feminist space of women reclaiming um, motherhood and home and you know just reclaiming what feels good for them you know rather yeah. than having to be pushed to what is empowerment for a whole collective of women you can't do that you know we're all no. individual and my, I'm also a really epic homemaker and cook and I love that that empowers me this is really interesting and this is a really I could talk about this for hours and I, I don't know how much time we've got left but all right, this is one of those things that has preoccupied me over and over and over again is how do I do in the world and how do I be? And how do I do both? How do I hold that beautiful expansive space of being and while still having agency in the world and getting things done that I want to do in the bigger picture? I feel like our society doesn't support us in that at the moment. And also I feel like mothers are largely unacknowledged. You know, we, we don't get paid for what we do for starters, but to pay someone to do the equivalent of what we do We'd be in the hundreds of thousands a year. By the time you've paid a nanny, a cook, a cleaner, a babysitter, a whatever, a chauffeur. Everything, an electrician, a plumber, right? You, <laughs> you, you, we, I don't know why motherhood isn't sort of subsidised actually. Definitely. <laughs> because I think it would take a lot of strain off families financially mm-hmm. and a lot of the issues that couples have, one of the top things couples fight about is money. And I think whoever is going to be the stay-at-home parent should be being supported financially by society, by the government, or should be being acknowledged (laughs) to a greater extent than they are. It's the hardest thing I've ever done Mm. is be a mum. And it is also the most wonderful. (laughs) So... That's complexity in a nutshell. I mean, I have this. Th- I have this interesting theory that I've I've just developed in my you know interesting brain of mine is that it, maybe feminism wouldn't have been such a big uproar if we hadn't separated women into white picket fences from each other, mm. but we actually given them the chance to raise their children in a community for each other. Because what I hear a lot of the stories is that you know. Being at home by yourself, I mean, mm. being by yourself full stop oh. is horrible. You're with your mind all the time, you yeah. know. But being in a collective of women raising children together in this more kind of like a, a tribal way, I guess, mm. seems to alleviate a lot of pressure. But also it gets you out of the 
the why me, which can happen a lot for a stay-at-home mums, you know, the, the postnatal depression sometimes mm. and the, the why me am I here and my husband's like out eight hours of the day or my partner or my lesbian lover or whoever you're, mm. you're partnering with to parent. Um, yeah. yeah, and I just wonder, is there a way of integrating that back? I know we have mums and bubs and stuff, but what is the way to support women? And, you know, subsidy would be amazing and and that, but but really like collective community in a way that's that shows them, wow, you are seen, you are loved, you are like so beautiful and the work you are doing is so, so needed. valuable. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like this is this is how we gather. Yeah, that's the work with how we gather is how do we come back full stop because regardless of whether you're a mother or not, we're all in that. We're all picket fenced away from each other currently. And Johan Hari is this beautiful author who's written a book called Lost Connections and he literally talks about that and he talks about how there are inflammatory responses in our body when we are socially isolated that kick in. We actually get inflammation in our cells and the, you know, and obviously symptoms of depression and addiction and all sorts of other things. So how do we come back to the tribe full stop is the question, is one of the questions. And and then tie that into parenting and trying to raise children in isolation. Yeah, that is another huge challenge. We go camping every year with a group of friends at Stradbroke Island. We just take some tents and we all go together with our kids and we pitch our tents in a big circle and it feels like the tribe. The kids all play together and parents all get to hang out together. Mm. And every now and then one of the parents will be gone because they'll be kind of doing a bit of wrangling of ten kids instead of one. And But on the whole, you actually get to finish a conversation, you get to finish a sentence, whereas if it's a play date with just one other family and there's two mums and there's four kids, say, you it's like you've got Tourette's. You never get to finish a sentence. You, you, you can't pay attention because someone's doing, oh, about to climb over the balcony, someone's going downstairs, someone's going to drink the pond water. Like there's, it's, there's always something happening. But when you've got more eyes and, and more kids, ironically it gets somewhat easier. Mm. But how do we, this is, these are sort of, again, this comes back to structures and powers that be that are not conducive to well-being full stop. Like it's... This is a bigger conversation that this is, again, maybe a symptom of a bigger bigger problem. problem. But where, where we have power and where we can make change is I feel like it, it, it comes with an internal shift and I'm saying this to myself as I'm saying this to you and I'm hearing myself because obviously this is something I needed to hear today um, is that we are enough. There's this constant pressure to be doing, to be achieving, to be seen. And as we return to the simplicity of those early moments with a newborn baby and I'm about to go right back into there, there's nothing else you can do in those moments. You are so consumed and needed. You've never been needed more by anyone in your life. And and there's a natural, like, dissolving of the world around you and dissolving of your own identity because, and I think that's actually closer to the truth than anything else because everything we do in life is an extension of our being and we don't sit with being much in our society at the moment and we define each other and ourselves by our doings 
and we look to each other and we compare ourselves with others and what are they doing and am I doing enough and and they're doing more than me and they're more important than me because they're doing more. And fundamentally, all of it's nonsense because at the end of the day, we can't take it with us. So we can have our impacts and make our changes to a certain extent. But when you're a mother in those early moments with this newborn baby, there is no one in the world who needs you more than this tiny person. So they get all of you and that's okay and that is enough. But there's a huge surrender in that and this is the Zen component of motherhood. You know, this is the this is like stepping into the monastery and letting putting shaving your head and giving them your clothes and wearing the robe, putting the robe on and going and sitting in silence for a year and this is the equivalent of these experiences, relinquishing of identity. And for that moment, you are this person's lifeline, this tiny little being's lifeline. And babies hold such huge being space. They don't react to you in the same ways that other people do with all these social masks. They're just a pure being that needs you to feed them, keep them warm and change them and keep them dry. And in that there's huge surrender and there's you touch that place in yourself of identitylessness. And that can be really confronting for the first time you do it, but then knowing that that's coming again, I feel like it's almost a relief for me this time. I'm like, oh, how beautiful I get to be in that space where there's nothing else I need to do or be and I get to touch that place in myself again of surrender. And um, part of me was really scared of that in the first three months of this pregnancy because I've been loving what I'm doing so much, more than I have ever loved it in my life. With my first pregnancy, I was ready to let go of that work. I was like, ah, I'm going to get time off work. (laughs) And this time I'm like, oh, my work, I have to let it go. I love my work right now because my work is a lot to do with that being space as well. And also I've just, it's, it's come from a different place in me. It's felt like purpose. It's felt like a calling, not like a so much of doing. So I really grieved it for about three months. I really struggled with letting go of, of the idea of having to let go of my work for a little while again, while I go into that space and touching that place in myself again. I was like, I don't want to touch that place. I don't want to surrender. I don't want to be identityless for a while. I don't want to, you know, be leaking milk and not washing my hair and not leaving the house for this tiny person. I I want to, I want to do things in the world. I have a mission. Mm. And then as the pregnancy has gone on and all my hormones have done all the things they do, I've I've realised this is exactly what I need to do because Mm. for me to hold the space for my work to be done in the world, I need to touch this place more often than not and I need to return to that space of beyond the doing. And, And the more I can do that, the more I can hold that for other people as well and give them permission to go to that space within themselves, hopefully, And I think that's a space we all need to touch in order for our work in the world to become more connected to one another and to ourselves and to the planet because that's the space from which you feel that connection innately, that it's an innate wellspring as opposed to I'm feeling so connected right now. It's amazing. I'm feeling so connected to my tribe at yoga and and my connected to the planet because I eat like organic and everything. It's, It's real humbling. Yeah, it's humble. Yeah. So beautifully said. 
Thank you so much. I don't think I've ever ever heard the the post pregnancy first couple of months um, with your baby described like that, but I feel like it's true. Like yeah. it, as a woman speaking to a woman, that feels like a truth, you know. And probably yeah. also why I'm relatively hesitant to also have a baby because there's a part of me that's like. I don't want to give it up either, girl. <laughs> you know? Like, and uh, this is the thing. You do have to give it up for a little while, but it does come yeah. back. And, yeah, it does come back. It does. Yeah. Well, I feel like this conversation's definitely made me reconsider. I was um, <laughs> telling Zoe at the beginning. Wow. I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't know. I wanted to have children, but now the whole world thing, you know? <laughs> and so and now I'm like, oh, maybe I can just have one, adopt two, and, yeah, I'm like, figure oh. it out. Along the way, anyway. adoption is needed. Yeah, adoption. Yeah, that's definitely on needed. my cards. If I'm not going to be birthing a real one, I'm going to have have a bunch and so many kids who need love and care and and for women out there who want to be mothers who may not yeah. want to, you know, who do feeling, you know, certain heavy burdens of where the world is going. It is it's it, it is important. There are a lot of children out there who could do with some really beautiful homes and some beautiful community. Yeah. Oh, Ella, thank you so much. It's thank you. Pleasure. Oh, my God, is there anything else that you want to say? Uh, just I want to acknowledge you for mm. the work you're doing in our community here and and how you're listening to stories. You're doing the storytelling work of, your, of the Indigenous culture that you've come from you know this is you're holding stories and you're holding circle and you're holding yarning circle in a different way mm. so thank you for your your sharing and your holding and um yeah I appreciate your listening ears thank you I appreciate our conversations yeah. been so nice yeah. I want just quickly so that people can yeah I know that you're going to be in Babyland. yes but still um I would love for people to be able to find you, find out more about um, your initiatives and, and just how yeah. they can get involved. So I've got a um, a little website, zoegamo.com, and I run my offerings through there. So as they change and evolve, there's still some consistency. And so we've got how we gather forward slash zoegamo.com and one green dress. I'm putting a holding page up for one green dress soon. But otherwise, you can find me and my musings on Instagram and heaps of baby spam for Ella. And uh, probably not. I've never. <laughs> She's just going to direct message yeah, them direct to me. Message, so. yeah. and, uh, and I've also got a holding page, uh, Instagram account for how we gather and one green dress. Yeah, and for those out there who want to jump on board and be part of this work of um, uniting sustainable fashion together, you know, hashtag One Green Dress. Yes. And um, that will come up on, on our collective page because we want change and we want you to be part of that with us. So We'd love that. Yeah. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Appreciate it. The Palmcast is a conversation series brought to you by Purposeful Production House Yaga in collaboration with Byron Bay co-working community, The Corner Palm. Our producer is Reese Jones. Our sound producer is Sean Clifford at Cheshire Audio. And our co-hosts are Eleanor Bancroft, Natalie Woods and Daniel Smith. Subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks for listening.